tell them, you have the strength. You're using all this strength to walk around with no nutrition in your body, to walk around fluid depleted. If you have the strength to use it that way, you, you have the strength to stop doing these things too, and I believe that you can. Welcome back to the Curbsiders, the internal well, hey, med. Hey, Stuart. This is the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Right. Dr. Matthew Otto here with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham and Dr. Paul Williams. Hey, Matt, why does it always surprise you when I interrupt you? You like kind of stumbling. Ugh. Yeah, I I guess I should stop being surprised. I'll work on that. Thank you. Yeah, it's going to happen every time. <laughs> Good Great note. feedback. Good <laughs> note, Stuart. <laughs> and Paul, where are you at? I, I'm right here, right here with you, Stuart, like I've always been. Excellent. Thank you. I was getting worried. You know, I I forgot to uh, bring in some specific listener feedback for you to read here, Stuart. So, why don't I just uh, why don't I just pick one at random? And I was uh, going to pick one. You you have one? You have one that you want to read? I haven't proofread it first. Let's see. It Perfect. says, "Hello, curbsiders. I'm an MS4 aspiring internist and a relatively new listener. I have a 50 minute one way commute to my training hospital, and today I turned off another podcast." I won't say which one. After less than 30 seconds, it switched back to yours. You're like the MTV in a world of C-SPAN medical podcasts. Winky face. Thanks, especially for today's anemia episode. I used to work in a hospital lab as a medical laboratory scientist, and I think many physicians could use more education about ordering and interpreting tests in the context of a patient's clinical status. Off to clinic. Thanks again for keeping me informed on my morning drive. Wait. Best to you. Did did they call us MTV in a world of C-SPAN? Yes, that's correct. You heard that. I like that quote. We've, I am not sure how I feel about that. We need to put that on the website. We've been compared to MTV. We've been compared to NPR. We've been what else have we been uh, compared to? <laughs> MTV is no longer cool, right? So I guess it's fitting. <laughs> well, yeah. that's yeah, it's past uh, its prime. That's perfect. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't watched MTV in like 20 years because uh, when is TRL still on? I don't know. Yeah, I don't I even know. Sure. <laughs> well, guys, what do you say we do some picks of the week? <laughs> oh, I love this music. It's amazing. Paul, what's your pick of the week? <laughs> and another flawless segue. <laughs> um, I am... Could just I aggressively choose something non-medical this time, and I'm going to choose the movie Mystery Team, um, which is a 2009 aggressively stupid movie. It is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen, and I enjoyed it very much. It's about a team of teenagers that are kind of analogous to sort of the, the Scooby-Doo um, school of, of mystery solving. But they're basically adults who are solving like just dumb kid mysteries that actually stumble onto a real one. It is absolutely not safe for kids before Stuart even asks. It starts... <laughs> Uh, Donald Glover, DC Pearson, um, and it's it's from the comedy group Derek Comedy, and it's just it sort of it plays with that that concept of sort of the kid sleuths, and then puts them in very adult situations, and then hilarity ensues. So if if you don't mind a little bit of blue comedy, and you're not going to watch it with your kids, I would recommend the movie Mystery Team, which I think is is streaming on Netflix, if I'm not mistaken. 
Paul, I, yeah. I believe when you and I became friends many years ago now, it was over a mutual love for the movie Basketball. So I think, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, I'm probably going to like that movie. Uh, yeah, it's, it's along that line of intellectual complexity, I think. Okay. Well, nice. My it earned eighty nine thousand dollars in the box office. That's pretty good. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> my pick of the week is actually um, way different than Paul's. It's it's a book called How We Learn by Benedict Carey, and I believe he's a reporter, science reporter for the New York Times, and was just and he's a journalist, and he wrote this book about he kind of really delved into the literature and wrote all these kind of surprising facts he, he found out about learning things like everyone always tells you study in the same place all the time, study in a quiet room with no distractions. And actually some of the things that work is varying where you study, having a low amount of background noise. And the book is just filled with a lot of tips and tricks like that kind of little hacks that you can do to try to increase your retention of knowledge. And I think it's a really great book. If you're an educator, it can kind of give you some ideas of how you want to teach your learners and how you want to learn yourself. So that, that was How We Learn by Benedict Carey. Excellent. Uh, I, suppose, I suppose it's my turn, right? Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So my pick of the week is in relation to a movie that I recently saw with my kids. Now, this is one that I saw growing up and it really kind of means a lot more to me now. Now that I have an autistic daughter, it's called Rain Man. I'm sure everyone's watched it before, but and it's an amazing movie, but it means so much more now uh, that I have an, a, a severely autistic daughter because some of those idiosyncratic things that are performed by um, by uh, Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, Dustin Hoffman. I, for some reason, I couldn't remember his name. In the movie, it, it, it really is indicative of some of the things that my, my own daughter does. And, you know, it's I, I see a lot of her and him and it just kind of it, it, it really did hit home when I watched it recently. If you haven't watched it before, I do highly recommend it. It is available on uh, many different streaming services. I think you have to pay at least a, a rental fee for it, but it, it is an amazing movie. You know, I, I have to say, I think I've seen parts of it. And of course, I know what the movie box cover looks like. But uh, I, I, I have to check that out, Stuart. Good recommendation. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, really. This is shameful, but I've never actually seen it. I know it's a classic. I feel like I've seen so many either bits and pieces of it or parodies of it that I had a sense of it already. But I probably should just yeah. sit down and watch it. Yeah, maybe yeah, you, you can squeeze it into your 365 sure. movies this no, year, I'm, Paul. <laughs> there you uh, go. To the list. It is a little over two hours long, so it's a little on the hefty side. Yeah. Well, Paul, at, at this point, I, I wanted to ask you just to kind of set up this episode as uh, we we have you to thank for this this great guest we had tonight. Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited to talk about this one uh, tonight. We actually have Dr. Rosalind Kaplan, who is an internist practicing in Philadelphia, and and we're going to be learning. Uh, and Roz is going to talk to us about eating disorders uh, specifically, so recognition of and a little bit about the treatment and some of the complications of them. And it's an interesting topic to me because it's something that I at least to my knowledge, have not encountered a whole ton of. I think probably I'll be a little bit more sensitive to it moving forward, but it's not something with which I had a whole lot of experience. And as as always, we use the show to fill in our significant knowledge gaps. And this is a really significant knowledge gap on my part. And, and Dr. Kaplan did a great job of, at least to some extent, filling in that gap a little bit. So I'm not sure how you guys felt, but it helped me out a ton, I think. Yeah, I think that this this episode, we, we learned basically everywhere from how to bring up the topic of eating disorder, who to suspect for an eating disorder, who to screen, and then 
man, getting into managing some of the complications and kind of putting people on a treatment plan. So I think if you know nothing about eating disorders, you'll, you'll learn a ton from this. Even if you know a lot about eating disorders or think you do, Dr. Kaplan is just an absolute expert and gave us a lot of clinical pearls that will probably help you as well. So please listen. And um, Paul, did you want to read her bio as well? Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Kaplan is an internist in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She's graduated summa cum laude with a BA in biochemistry and psychology from Brandeis, and then went on to earn her MD degree from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. She completed a residency training at Temple uh, University in Philadelphia, and she completed a clinical fellowship in psychosomatic medicine with the Philadelphia Psychoanalytic Association. So she's been practicing primary care medicine with an interest in the medical complications of eating disorders for 19 years. And also, interestingly, writes creative nonfiction, um, usually related to medical issues in practice, uh, including a book, The Patient in the White Coat, which she talks to us a little bit about. She is an associate professor of clinical medicine at Thomas Jefferson University and a primary care physician in the Jefferson Women's Primary Care. And she is actively involved in the education of residents and medical students. And without further ado, I present Dr. Rosalind Kaplan. And this is a serious topic. I've got no puns for you today. Thank you, Stuart, for your restraint. You're welcome. Holy smokes. Very impressed. Mm -hmm. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hi, Matt. (laughs) Hi, Stuart. This is your host, Dr. Matthew Watto. And as you can hear, Stuart is is with me tonight. I'm back. And also the great Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Hi, Paul. Hey, guys. How are you? Doing, Doing very well. And I am proud to announce our guest tonight, Dr. Rosalind Kaplan. She is an associate professor of clinical medicine at Thomas Jefferson University. Hi, Dr. Kaplan. Hi, how are you? Good. And uh, so I don't mess mess up your name the whole time. Is it okay if we just call you Roz for the recording tonight? That's perfect. I think I can handle that. Three letters, that's that's my style. So I think <laughs> I think we're gonna have to go first name basis with all future guests, guys. That way I just have much less to mess up. Next one I get is Shah Mahamadi. <laughs> By the way, that was one of my friends. <laughs> Hi Shah Mahamadi, how are you doing? <laughs> okay. Uh so maybe we should just move into the normal questions. Uh getting to know Roz a little bit. Roz, my first question I always ask every guest, if you had to give a one-liner to describe yourself, the kind that we give to patients when we're, when we're on rounds in the hospital, what would that sound like? Mm. Okay, well, I'll just give you, I'll give you one for you, not necessarily for patients. Um, I'm a 56-year-old married internist, and I'm also an author and a wannabe psychiatrist. Uh, I just didn't want to go back for, for residency again. Um, my mother of two millennials and, um, of a seven pound dog. Well, Stuart, it sounds like she's, she's an amateur psychiatrist, just like you are Stuart. So it mm. sounds like you have a lot in common. Was that a seg- segue to, to get me to ask a question? Yeah. If you wanted to ask a question, this would be a good <laughs> okay. time. Was very I believe cool. you've been on the show before Stuart. Uh- <laughs> oh yes, yes, yes. So, uh, let's see. I, I could ask one of the stock questions. I Googled the best question to ask an interview on radio. The first thing that pops up is, was the archbishop a re- religious man? So, that's my question to you. I have no idea. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for wasting everyone's time, Stuart. Paul, why don't you ask a question? Usually, I ask the what's a favorite book that you have or a book that every physician should read. I actually, I don't think that I knew that you'd written a book. Did I know that? I wonder if you would mind telling us a little bit about that. 
Oh, the book that I wrote. Um, yeah. The book that I wrote was based on a very unfortunate experience back in, oh, I guess it was 91. After spending a lot of time in um, urban emergency rooms, I was diagnosed with hepatitis C. And that was right when the virus had been isolated. And there was really no treatment except for experimental interferon at the time. So I got to be a guinea pig and had liver biopsies and interferon, liver biopsies, you know, not with ultrasound, just with this big trocar, you know, blind stick and um, took a few courses of interferon. And it was just sort of a, a horrible kind of wandering through being a patient and uh, I was very lucky. I will tell you that that the end is uplifting. You know, now it's so much different treating hepatitis C. So it's kind of outdated in a lot of ways. But in terms of, you know, sort of being a book about being a patient and being a doctor, I think it still has those universal qualities to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds terrifying. I don't ever want to be a patient. I, I try to avoid it at all costs. So... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, doctors do that. You know, it, it doesn't always serve us well, but I can so, understand it. So, yeah. d- d- Dr. Kaplan, I actually have a fairly serious question. Um, wh- what do you think is, is the most important lesson that you learn from being a patient? Oh, from being a patient. Right. I learned a, a couple of really important lessons. I mean, the, the biggest one that I learned is that you really must advocate for yourself and know as much as you can. Right. And hopefully not from uh, Googling and getting into chat rooms, but but really learning about your illness and your prognosis and your treatment, because you're not necessarily going to get what you hope you get from your doctors. And I think I also learned to be more patient with patients when they're anxious, especially because this was a very anxiety provoking experience. And, you know, it brings me back there when I see a patient being anxious in front of me. Yeah. You know, um, my wife gets, you know, she, she's been admitted a few times and, um, just being on that side, side of the, uh, the fence has kind of helped me to personally realize that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, when you approach a patient as a physician and you feel as though, you know, why is this, this patient questioning me? When you've been on the other side, you understand more what those questions mean. It, they don't necessarily mean what they mean at face value. They mean, I'm scared. Please help me. Absolutely. Help me to understand this. Absolutely. And patients getting angry can mean the right. same thing. Um, it's, I think it's a lot easier to tolerate some of the behaviors I see from my patients um, without assuming that it's an attack. Yeah. How much do you think of that fear? Now, we're, we're, uh, this kind of is going to go into our topic here. How much do you think, how, how much does that fear play a lot into the development of, say, an eating disorder? I like think misplaced that, anxiety. That um, eating disorders are a lot about anxiety. Um, and it depends on on what eating disorder we're talking about. And it's only a piece of the picture but there's almost always an association with a lot of anxiety. Um, and we can talk sort of about how the, the cycle kind of goes that the eating disorder can create anxiety too. Roz, I'd, I'd like to just kind of get us off. Stuart's led us into the topic pretty artfully here. And I'd like to ask you, we always like to start with a case from Cashlack Memorial Hospital, which is the fake hospital where Stuart, Paul and I say that we work. And, uh, 
we are hiring. So, you know, we, we are hiring section chiefs right now. So for women's health, you know, maybe, maybe you're a candidate, but can you, can you give us like a typical case or maybe a case example that'll highlight some of the main teaching points that you want to talk, talk about tonight? You can start with the prompt and then we'll kind of go through uh, piece by piece from the basics to the more advanced stuff. Absolutely. So I'm going to give you sort of a composite case. I'm going to start with a, a 24-year-old um, who's actually a medical student. And uh, she, in high school, was treated uh, with psychotherapy for a lot of worrying, anxiety, um, started restricting food, and had a weight loss of about 15 pounds, really didn't get into an a terribly unhealthy weight range, but this was over three to four months. So that's pretty quick to lose that amount of weight. And that was in her senior year of high school. And then when she was threatened with not being allowed to leave for college, she gained back about half of the weight. She started college uh, and was better for a while, but by junior year had actually started to have episodes of binging and purging and all the time she had worried about her weight and she'd probably exercised more than most people had through all of that time. But now she's now binging and purging, um, very embarrassed, doesn't seek help because of how much shame she has about it. But now that she's gotten to medical school, she's more and more anxious. This has become three to four times a week. She's over-exercising. And in fact, it, there's a conflict between exercise and, and getting her work done. And um, she started to use laxatives. And one day she has a syncopal episode. So she ends up going to student health because her classmates really freak out about this. She's leaving a class when it happens. And student health examines her. She's not forthcoming about what's going on. They do some labs and an EKG. The EKG is normal. The labs show a slightly low potassium and they refer her to you at CashLock. She's 5'8", she's 120 pounds. Her heart rate and pulse are normal when she's supine, but when she stands up, she becomes orthostatic and dizzy. And I'm going to end there. That's a great history. And uh, I guess kind of the point to start off with here would be, so how, how would you get, how would you begin to talk to this patient about what's going on from, from the history? Because if you're seeing that patient, you just see this as someone who passed out from class, they have low potassium, but you don't really know all that history you just gave us. So how did, how do you start to recognize this? Or if you're seeing this from that, from that lens where low potassium, uh, a young, young lady who passed out after class, how would, how should we start to recognize this as a potential eating disorder? So in a young, otherwise healthy person who doesn't have any metabolic disturbances that you're aware of, having a low potassium immediately uh, sort of strikes a, a note, at least with me. This is a 24-year-old, not taking any diuretics as far as you know, hasn't told you she's taking any diuretics. So I immediately would be a little concerned about this. And with young people... Um, one of the things I would always ask uh, around syncope is what um, what 
the eating habits had been like at least that day and whether the person had hydrated. And that would kind of lead me, I think, into getting some clues. And I think that I would actually go down the road with someone like this of, of asking specifically about eating disorder symptoms and about anxiety and depression. We know that medical students have a tremendous amount of anxiety and depression. I mean, I think the last, uh, the last polls that were taken showed that close to half of medical students have depressive symptoms at least. So I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't hesitate to, to start in on that road um, as long as I'd made the person comfortable enough to talk to me. And maybe to take just a step back, I know that, Paul, you had wanted to kind of start about asking just sort of a broad overview of the eating disorders that we at least have to choose from. So, Roz, maybe you could kind of just give us a broad, a broad overview of like the most common ones that we might see and, and what those might look like. Right. So I'm going to just talk about three because there's other eating disorders and um, I don't think we need to, to go into all of it. I'm going to stick with the ones that we really know about at this point. So anorexia, um, which is defined and, you know, there's there's sort of some loose definitions in all of this. So just um, to to give you that perspective that there may be questions even after hearing the criteria so anorexia is restriction of energy intake um, relative to energy needs um, for physical health. And um, there is no specific amount of weight that has to be lost, um, nor is there any more uh, a percentage of ideal body weight. We used to say it was uh, if someone refused to maintain their weight um, above 85% of ideal body weight, that was from DSM-4. But in the DSM-5, it's now just restriction relative to need. There's also um, an intense fear of gaining weight. And that is very pervasive. It's probably one of the most obvious symptoms and there's distortion of body image. So the patient is experiencing the way their uh, body weight uh, or shape is very differently than anyone else would interpret it. And then bulimia would be the, the second category. Um, and bulimia is marked by binging and purging. So the first question everybody always asks is, what is a binge? And um, a binge is a really complicated thing to explain because it's different for different people. But the way it's defined is eating a much larger amount of food in a given period of time. And the DSM-5 gives us two hours to, uh, to look at a binge uh, in a given period of time than a normal person would. And that's pretty difficult because, you know, what's a normal person? You know, a binge for one of you is very different than a binge for me. Um, a binge for a young guy would have to be an awful lot of food probably, whereas somebody my age and size eating a whole pizza could be a binge. There's a lot of shame associated with it. So it's a very disturbing experience for the patient. And that's one of the criteria as well. And there also has to be compensatory 
purging behavior. And that purging doesn't have to be vomiting. We always think it's sticking your finger down your throat, but it could be vomiting. It could be use of laxatives. It could be over-exercise. And it can even be restriction in response to the overeating. So in other words, I binge at night and then the next day I don't eat all day and then I binge at night again. Um, so that's, and it has to occur at least three times a week over, or two to three times a week over at least, I think, a three-month period to define bulimia. And is exercise part of one of those compensatory behaviors yeah. as well? Yes, exercise can be one of the compensatory behaviors. You could be an exercise bulimic and you know have the binging behavior and then go to the gym for four hours the next day. Is is there any utility now? I, I'm I'm not sure if uh, if you can maybe expand on this. So I've always thought of anorexia nervosa as being more of a um, more calorie restriction and and weight loss associated with that. And and because I, because there's there's a, t- a subtype, the binging and purging anorexia nervosa. Is there is there any utility of thinking of that subtype of anorexia as a as different from bulimia? It is different. You can't define bulimia if it's um, you can't diagnose bulimia if it's within um, an episode of anorexia. So if the actual thinking is that I'm doing this to lose weight and there's been restriction and there's been weight loss and there's there's a purging type of of anorexia. So some Mm -hmm. people will eat normal amounts of food and then purge them as a way to not gain the weight or a way to lose weight. Um, And eventually some some binging can occur within that, and it's often a physiological response to the starvation. Um, so you can't diagnose it as bulimia if if the actual intent and original diagnosis was anorexia. Right. Bulimia has to occur de novo. But you can have morphing of one kind of eating disorder to another, and it happens a lot. Yeah, that was that was going to be the question because it, it it sounds like I mean all these criteria are kind of subjective in some yeah. ways, so it seems like there might be a little bit of overlap uh, between the two, or or can patients right. kind of flow from from one to the other? Do, do you commonly see that over the course of someone's life? Yes, I see it a lot, and mm-hmm. it it often is somebody who's been restricting for a long period of time and. After a while, physiologically, they just can't do the restriction anymore, and they start to binge and purge, and then eventually it becomes just binging and purging, and, and it's for the binge-purge satisfaction alone rather than to lose weight at that point. So it is, you know, it can become a different kind of eating disorder. Right, but it's, but and, and I'm sure we'll get into the treatments here in a, uh, a little bit later, but the actual yeah. treatments, like like pharmacotherapy is sub- significantly different for anorexia versus bulimia. It is. It's very different and there's a good, there are many good reasons why we right. talk about. Um, I also wanted to mention, so we're going to, I'll tell you about binge eating disorder in a second because that's another important category that we see really frequently. But there are, A lot of people who don't meet all the criteria for either anorexia or bulimia, it doesn't mean they don't have an eating disorder. We used to call it eating disorder not otherwise specified. Now it's, you know, other specific eating disorder or something like that. Um, But it's people who just have some version of these symptoms but don't quite meet the full syndrome. So I see a lot more of those patients than I see either of anorexia or bulimia. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It, it it does. I'm I'm just I'm looking at the the diagnostic criteria, and it seems like some religious fasts, like in Ramadan, would would meet their criteria for this to well, some extent. I'm not Ramadan eat during um, you know the night. They, they right, wait they till did. sundown and they eat. So, but they don't necessarily binge. They okay. would probably eat during the night to the point of you know not being hungry anymore. But that doesn't mean they're binging. Okay. I'm just looking at the diagnostic criteria and it just has me a little yeah. confused. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it is really confusing. Um, anorexia generally is not fasting though. It's, um, it's eating. Most anorexics eat. And in fact, they, they'll say, well, there's nothing wrong with me. I eat, but they don't eat nearly enough to meet their, their caloric needs. I imagine there's not that pervasive fear of, of weight gain, too, which is one of the requisite components, or am I misunderstanding? In Ramadan, yes. Yeah. Yes, during Ramadan. Yeah, it's the pervasive feeling of, of, you know, I can't gain weight, I need to lose weight, I'm never small enough, the body image distortion, that right. all has to be there to meet the criteria. So binge eating disorder is probably more common than either anorexia or bulimia. In fact, we know it's more common, and it's... Um, it's more equally distributed among men and women. It essentially is what we were defining a binge as, but without the compensatory behavior. A lot of people find that their binging happens at night, but they're not doing it with the intention of the purge afterwards. And um, they're also very embarrassed and, and feel very ashamed of their binge eating and are constantly trying to stop that. They experience it as being, you know, it's, it's not egocentric. It's, it's egodystonic to be doing that. This must be kind of hard to study to study this because I, I guess if people are so ashamed of, of these behaviors that do you think that the incidence is actually higher than what we're seeing because people are just not being brought into care for if, if from binge eating disorder or bulimia, if nothing bad is happening to them? Yes, I absolutely think that there's a lot of underdiagnosis and it's been looked at a little bit in men. Um, getting populations of men in universities and um, talking to them about eating behaviors. And in the context of, of doing a study, people will sometimes tell you things that they you know, wouldn't have just gone and told their doctors. The underreporting in men is really tremendous because they see eating disorders as being a woman's disease. And so our statistics and our demographics really may be um, pretty screwed up because especially with anorexia and bulimia, there may be a lot more men who are affected than we're aware of. So I, I think that probably leads to the, the next question I had, which is how, what is your approach to screening for this? So what, what sort of raises a red flag? So you mentioned your 24 year old patient who has hypokalemia or maybe a, a syncopal episode. What other features might kind of raise your antenna to, to be on the lookout and, and how do you screen? Well, first of all, you've got to look at your demographics and, you know, what, what population should you be screening? So young women need to just be screened. Women, uh, adolescent girls and young women need to just be asked. And I do that as part of a routine um, evaluation when I first start meeting with a patient. And I'm, I'm pretty forthright asking them, um, do you have any concerns about your eating behaviors? Um, you know, sometimes people are sent to me 
because they have eating disorders. So I have a different outlook also because people come to me with the diagnosis, but most physicians are not going to have that happen. They're, they're going to have to like dig it out of the person. So that population needs to be screened. I don't see a lot of men now, but we do see men in our practice, even though it's mainly a women's practice. And I do screen the adolescent men and um, men in their 20s as well at this point, because I've become aware that um, men are being underdiagnosed. So my screening, I don't use for everyone the questionnaires, and I'll talk about what those are in just a minute, but I don't think I necessarily need to use the the questionnaires in every patient. I just forthrightly ask, um, are you having any concerns about your eating behaviors? Are there other people in your life who have had concerns about your eating behaviors? Has there been any significant weight gain or or weight loss? Tell me about dieting. And have you ever binged or purged? And I think by asking it and sort of normalizing those questions Mm -hmm. as just being part of the interview, I don't get a tremendous amount of resistance, people, you know, answering the questions, honestly, I really feel that I get um, a good amount of honesty out of a a population that I screen that way. The other people who really need to be screened are patients who um, are in certain kinds of athletics, particularly judged athletics, um, wrestling and athletics where being small or thin track and crew are really important. Do you, you said that you kind of have it as part of your normal interview. Do you use a normalizing statement? This is now, this is a question that I ask all my patients because it's pretty common in this, in patients like yourself. And and then you ask the question about the eating behaviors. Is that, how how would you phrase it? Cause that's pretty much what I say because you don't want to put somebody off. So I ask, you know, in, in, my general questions about nutrition, you know, how do you think your diet is? And then my, and I, you know, tell me about your exercise. And then once I've gotten an initial answer to that, then I would say, um, I want, you know, I ask all my, my patients in this age range, um, these questions. Um, it's not because I'm suspecting anything particular, but I wondered if, and then I, bring up, you know, the issues of dieting and all that. Great. That's, that's really helpful because, uh, having never, having never really brought up the topic, it's, it's just useful to, to know how to broach the subject with patients. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it, it, um, if it's normalized like that, patients don't, I've really never had anybody get upset with me for Mm. asking those questions. I think people really appreciate it because if they are, um, having behaviors that they're ashamed of, being able to just tell someone is such a relief. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned some specific questionnaires. I, I imagine if you just kind of jumped right into a questionnaire, they, the patient would be able to tell <laughs> you're like reading them a questionnaire and then they might be less forthcoming. Absolutely. Uh, which ones do you use and, and how do you work them in? Is it Does the patient fill it out on their own or is it something that you... Like once you've identified, if they give you some positive answers, do you then bring it out and have them fill it out? Or do you ask them and fill it out yourself? I generally will ask them and fill it out myself if I'm going to use a questionnaire. I'm not a huge fan of questionnaires. I think they can be very useful in a busy primary care practice, though. So the scoff questionnaire and um, the 
ESP, which is the Eating Disorders um, Inventory for Primary Care, are, are the two that are used the most. There's a whole bunch of other questionnaires, but they're much longer and much more in-depth. So the SCOF questionnaire asks, uh, you know, I find some of these, these questions, um, compared to, to just asking in a forthright way, do you ever purge? The SCOF questionnaire asks, do you ever make yourself sick? because you're uncomfortably full. The C is, uh, do you worry you've lost control over your eating? The O, <laughs> that one really <laughs> makes me laugh because it's, have you lost more than one stone in the past? I can't remember. I think it's a three-month period. Yeah, it's a yeah. three-month period. Obviously uh, a UK. One stone being 22 pounds, I believe. Yeah, obviously um, a UK... Uh, uh, questionnaire here. That one doesn't go over all too well. So I have to <laughs> rephrase that. Do you believe yourself to be fat when other people think you're thin is one of the F's. Um, and would you say that food dominates your life? Hmm. So I find these questions to be less helpful than just having a conversation, but it is a validated questionnaire. The ESP, I think, is a little bit easier to ask. So are you satisfied with your eating patterns? Uh, do you ever eat in secret? Which I think is a great question because it's one of those things that people are ashamed of. And then you ask them that and it's like, yeah, I do do that. So other people do that too? Wow. Um, if you're asking me, other people must do it. Does your weight affect the way you feel about yourself? I've never had anybody say no to that question. Now. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I mean, right. universal. I mean, yes, you're all guys, but I don't know if that if you'd say yes to that question. But with women, it's like you know, you get on the scale and one pound up, you you know, you hate yourself that day. A couple pounds down, you're like, wow, this is a great day. Um, <laughs> so I think it's pretty hard to say no to that. And then um, just asking if you've suffered with an eating disorder. You know, I think that that is a fairly straightforward question. question. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially what I read into this is that it's a hundred percent sensitive and not very specific. (laughs) Well, that is a problem. Yeah. I think that's true. I think with the scoff questionnaire, it's a little bit more specific, but there are also difficult questions to ask. Yeah. So, so we can, I think maybe just looking, looking at these questions, if, if you kind of forget what you should be asking, you can look at the, we can, we can put a link in there for the, the scoff questionnaire and the ESP and, and uh, people can look at them at least to remember what questions to ask when you're using these questionnaires. Is it just for anorexia and bulimia or is it also for binge eating disorder too? Cause it sounds like it could qualify there as well. You could use it for binge eating disorder also, but there is a binge eating disorder inventory okay. that is better for, for binge eating disorder. It basically asks people if they eat in secret and if they eat amounts that are greater than they believe somebody else would eat in a short period of time. So it's a pretty straightforward questionnaire. Uh, Paul, where do you want to go next with the... So we've kind of talked about the initial screening now and the broad overview. Yeah, I think now's a good to so this this uh, your your case study your patient presented to you with hypokalemia, but I, I right. think it's worth asking when you when your suspicion is there for um, any of the eating disorders, but say let's start with specifically with anorexia. What kind of initial laboratory workup do you for those patients? So um, for anorexia, first of all, I really need to know um, 
I, I need to know height and weight and, and where they are in that whole thing to, to even know my lab work up because if they're purely having um, anorexia and there is no purging, I, I think that it is dependent on weight. People who are very low weight, less than 75% of ideal body weight are going to need an EKG which you don't need if someone is up in the 85% of ideal body weight range. I would definitely check some lab work, a comprehensive metabolic profile, because you do want to know about renal function. You want to know about um, liver function. You often see liver function abnormalities in patients who are restricting um, in an extreme way because it revs the liver up, making you know trying to make more glucose. So the gluconeogenesis occurs, and then um, you'll also get some enzyme elevations with that if the patient is really restricting a lot. So I like to look at liver function tests. Uh, definitely need blood count because you can get a pancytopenia in people whose intake is extremely low. And with the EKG, sorry, just to break in, the EKG bradycardia QT prolongation with anorexia, I was reading that's something that you might see. Exactly. The QT prolongation doesn't generally occur until people are at extremely low weights, below 65% of ideal body weight. Below 60% of ideal body weight, sudden cardiac death can just occur. And um, it's really frightening to see patients at those weights. And I, I have had people walk into my office um, at less than 60% of ideal body weight. Definitely an EKG is going to be helpful for the QT prolongation. Bradycardia is more, you know, you could tell that from their heart rate when you take their vital signs, but you want to know if they're in sinus rhythm and, uh, or if it's a junctional rhythm. Um, get a little more concerned when you see a junctional rhythm. The bottom line, though, is there's very little you can do about a very low heart rate other than feed someone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why do I really want to know? Well, I want to know how sick you are. Mm -hmm. You can also see some of the things that you might later find out on the labs, like evidence of hypokalemia on your EKG, but you're going to get the labs anyway. With lab studies, um, besides the comprehensive metabolic, you're going to, because as I said, liver and kidney function, and you want to know electrolytes. There are disturbances of electrolytes even um, without purging. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. I'll generally do a a TSH to make sure that there's no thyroid dysfunction, that I'm not getting mixed up between thyroid problems and anorexia. And also because you can see some euthyroid sick syndrome. So it's worth getting that. If there's um, a lot of, of restricting going on, a magnesium and a phosphorus are important as well. Generally, that's going to be my workup. If there's loss of menstrual periods, uh, it can be helpful to get an estrogen sometimes, but you're kind of assuming that the reason for it is is low estrogen and it doesn't necessarily have to be in your initial workup. For bulimia, the workup is going to be somewhat different. I mean, you're much more concerned about electrolyte disturbances, so you want to definitely send that comprehensive metabolic profile. Drug screens, tox screens in patients with bulimia because there's a lot of crossover with substance abuse. What about the... How about dex, DEXA? Oh, sorry. Ah, I was about to ask that. I was going to say, what about bone densometry? Yeah. So if you have a patient who has um, lost weight and has lost more than six menstrual periods, you do want to look at bone densitometry. And Again, there's, there's sort of this issue of, well, you know, what are you going to do with a young person 
who has evidence of loss of bone or has not formed enough bone. You know, a lot of these people are either 18 years old and they've missed a year of their periods. So they have secondary amenorrhea. Um, and now I'm going to get a DEXA and I'm comparing them with a T-score to somebody who's 30 and has uh, peak bone density. Well, I've got to look at the Z-score and see where they are compared to people of their own age. It's more useful as a therapeutic tool than anything else, because in those patients, I can say to them, look, you know, this is this is causing you a serious problem that may not be that may not be reversible. So for our audience, real quick, if you could just differentiate real quick between a T and a Z score. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So a T score compares a patient's bone density to that of a 30 year old woman, which is when you would expect someone to reach peak bone density. A Z-score compares um, a patient's bone density to the density of right. a normal patient of their own age. And, and that number represents the, uh, the normal distribution, the, the, or I'm sorry, the number of standard deviations away from the norm. That's correct. So osteopenia, which is a milder bone loss, is anything from, um, uh, from uh, one standard deviation below the norm to negative 2.4 deviations below the norm. Osteoporosis would be negative 2.5 deviations below the norm or more. That's right. And for those of us who have moved over to ICD-10, the, the new diagnosis for osteopenia is other specified disorders of bone density and structure, Correct. unspecified site. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I want to make sure we're clarified. I'm glad you say that so quickly. Uh, but so, Dr. Kaplan, back back to your point. So, but with, with the densitometry, even if you see osteopenia or osteoporosis in these patients, that's not an indication for bisphosphonate. I don't think anyone recommends that. It's no. more to see how sick they no. are. And sort Many of years ago, we actually did give some of these young women bisphosphonates, but given that the bisphosphonate is going to sit around in their system and they may eventually decide to bear children, that's a problem. And also, you can't leave people on bisphosphonates indefinitely. So uh, we do not treat it that way. We make sure they get calcium, vitamin D, um, possibly weight-bearing exercise if they can tolerate exercise at all. But it's really more to be able to show the patient, here we have a problem and to follow it after that. Can we, can we get back to the case and can you kind of tell us, if you have a continuation of the, of the case, can you, can you sort of tell us a little bit about that and how would you actually talk, talk to the patient about the, what you think is going on and how would you counsel her what, what the treatment plan is going to be moving forward? Okay, so I think at the point that I find out that she's been restricting, there's going to be a lot of emotional response from a patient at that point in most cases. And they may be very upset that, you know, they've, they've sort of spit it out at this point. They may be relieved. Mm -hmm. um, so we may talk about that a little bit and then talk about the effects of this on their health. So the same things that we're talking about here, like bone density and abnormal electrolytes mm -hmm. and the, the fact that this person has now passed out and that passing out is, is dangerous because you can hit your head and that clearly, you know, you're not getting enough fluids in, um, you're, you know, endovascularly depleted because here we have, you know, a situation where you're standing up and, and passing out. Then I would explain that 
this is a disorder that we don't fully understand, but we know that there are some genetic underpinnings and that on top of the genetic underpinnings, there's usually sort of a loaded gun thing going on. So the genetics are the loaded gun and then you pull the trigger with your environment mm -hmm. and that a high stress environment, such as medical school in this patient's case, um, could be one of the triggers. There may be other psychological triggers that had gone on before. And if I get that history that she actually had eating disorder symptoms way back in high school, we may end up talking about the anxiety and anxiety as a trigger. Um, the fact that anxiety usually becomes worse and people often become depressed when they restrict a lot um, and that it becomes a vicious cycle of the lack of proper nutrition actually making their psychological symptoms worse and making them more uncomfortable and how truly uncomfortable this disease is for so many reasons. The patient's often then willing to, to go to the next step and I'll tell them that our standard of care at this point is psychotherapy, nutritional therapy, and medical monitoring. In this patient's case, she's probably stable for outpatient treatment. Now, if I had somebody who was clearly uh, much more emaciated and had uh, much more significant electrolyte disturbances and we had to talk about higher levels of care, for instance, day programs or intensive outpatient programs or even an inpatient program, that's going to create you know, a, a much bigger um, kind of crisis for the patient because they're also trying to live their lives and this patient's in medical school. Um, but talking about outpatient treatment, there's usually some resistance, you know, how am I going to have the time for this? How am I going to tell my parents about this? How am I going to admit to my boyfriend or my friends or whatever it is that I have to get this treated? And so we can kind of go through some discussion of that. I'll often get asked about medications and I know you're going to ask me about medications. So <laughs> right. <laughs> that can be your next question. Sure. I, I, since you brought it up for this case, this young lady, is there anything about her that would make you think to go for a medication and, and what medication might you choose? So at this point, she's squarely believing, not anorexia, not binge eating disorder. Um, and I would tell her that fluoxetine has been approved for binging and purging. It can um, decrease the, the impulse to binge and purge. And that that has to be at fairly high doses in order for it to work. And it's an adjunct. If the patient has significant, significant anxiety, they may be um, very interested in starting medication as well because it can quell their anxiety. But we also have to have labs back before we're going to start fluoxetine because of the potential for hyponatremia. And patients um, can get hyponatremic, obviously, with bulimia if they're repleting their losses with, you know, just water, um, not getting their electrolytes back in. And, you know, just to mention this, and this doesn't have to do with medication, but in anorexia, we see a lot of um, hyponatremia. And that can be from, it's really a form of SIADH or reset osmostat from um, the low weight 
and uh, loss of body fat. So we do really want to have labs back before we think about medication. I would tell someone with anorexia, if, if we were looking at this patient in high school when she was restricting and over-exercising but not purging, I would tell her that there is really no evidence that there are any medications that work for anorexia. And in fact, it seems that when patients have comorbid anxiety and depression, if they're restricting significantly, medications don't work very well. And that's probably because they're not able to produce enough neurotransmitter to have those medications work. So we can you know, have all the, the inhibition of reuptake we want, but if we don't have enough serotonin, it's not going to work. But in this case, um, fluoxetine would be okay. Off-label, I use other SSRIs if the patient has reasons for not using fluoxetine specifically. For instance, maybe they've heard terrible things about it, um, but they would be willing to try another SSRI. I have found that I think they work. All of them work. It's just that fluoxetine is the only one that's FDA approved. I see. So it was it was specifically studied for that. It's not like the other ones were necessarily studied and mm-hmm. failed. It just they just haven't been studied. Correct. For the indication. They've never been. They've never been right. studied for the it, indication. It, it, so in your hands, you're saying it's kind of a class effect that they they seem to work. Yes. It should be noted though that uh, bupropion needs to be avoided at all costs in both anorexia and bulimia. That is in theory correct. Hmm. Okay. Um, I think that it's a little more complicated than that because where that came from is that in patients with specifically bulimia, when it was all teased out, there was an increase in seizures in patients who were taking bupropion. Um, In patients who are not purging, that increase is probably very insignificant. However, there is a black box warning about it. And consequently, I do not use bupropion in any mm-hmm. eating disorder patients, except possibly in binge eating disorder where it's probably not contraindicated. Yeah. And it's more associated with weight loss than the other antidepressants too. Isn't that correct? Correct. Um, it also doesn't work very well for anxiety. It works for a more vegetative depression, and we're dealing with disorders that are associated with a lot of anxiety, so we're probably going to do better with an SSRI or another, um, you know, if we need to go out of the class, um, something else that's going to work more for anxiety. I wanted to go back when you were mentioning the the kind of the treatment team or the treatment plan. You were saying there's going to be psychotherapy and nutritional therapy. You're you're prescribing a medication if there's uh, for certain conditions like bulimia or if there's an underlying psychiatric illness. But mm-hmm. where does the primary care physician factor into this? And is this something that that the primary care physician who's maybe treated a case or or maybe this is their first case, are they going to need to call for help or refer to a specialist for this? I think that they really, first of all, need to know that it needs to be a team approach. They're not going to treat this alone. They're not going to make the patient better alone. And in fact, they may not be able to make the patient better. And if they have a preconceived notion that this is a volitional um, behavior, they need to refer the patient to someone else. If they 
have gotten past the point of believing that they the patient is being non-compliant and if they would just eat because I tell them to eat, then I think any solid primary care physician is capable of doing the medical monitoring for this. It's bread and butter medicine. It's metabolism. It's a little bit of nutrition, which of course we don't learn enough about, but um, it's essentially metabolism that we need to know about and electrolytes that we need to know about and, uh, you know, electrolyte and fluid balance. And any primary care physician learned those things. They may need to do a little refreshing, but they've learned it. How, how often are we going to be monitoring electrolytes in somebody that, let's say they're not, they're not, you think, you think it's bad, I guess it's moderate, or I, I know there's levels of this, but I, I, I wouldn't expect our audience to memorize the levels, but right, of course not. let's say you're worried someone's, you're worried someone is not eating to the point, or you're worried someone's purging to the point where they're going to have electrolyte abnormalities. How often are you checking them? Because uh, the feasibility of that, just to get the patient in and everything, um, how often right. do you do that? There is a little bit of an art to this. Okay. And, um, there's no clear guideline on exactly how often to see a patient at what point in their illness. However, if someone is in an active weight loss phase of anorexia, I will see them at least every two weeks. If someone is in an active purging phase of bulimia, I will see them several times two weeks apart to make sure that they're electrolyte stable. If they're not, then they're probably going to need to go to a higher level of care. If they are, then I can relax a little as long as the pattern isn't worsening. If I'm seeing a lot of um, electrolyte disturbance and it's, it's beyond the levels that I feel comfortable with treating in the office, I and mean, if I'm seeing potassiums of, of 3.5, repeatedly, I may give the patient a little bit of a potassium supplement, have the psychotherapist work with them and maybe give them medication and, um, you know, like fluoxetine and hope that things get better over the next couple of months. If I'm seeing potassiums of 2.8, they're headed to the emergency room every time I see them getting IV potassium and that's not okay. 2.5, they're going to need to be admitted. So that I'm not going to, I'm not going to play with. By seeing the patient every couple of weeks for several visits, I can determine if they're stable. I would think to some extent that would also just underscore the severity of the illness and how concerned mm -hmm. you are about things. Even in the setting of normal labs, just seeing someone fairly frequently early on would kind of reinforce the fact that you're just worried about them. That's right. And with anorexia, um, especially in the younger women, they will have normal labs, many of them will have normal labs for a very long period of time, maybe through their entire illness, unless they get to an extremely low weight. And that doesn't mean that everything's okay by any means. I was going to ask about like with the, the hyponatremia, when, when you see it in these patients with anorexia or bulimia, what sort of numbers are you seeing? And is that something that you're admitting to the hospital? We had done a, a recent show on hyponatremia talking about kind of the tea and toast where people are not eating enough solute and they they kind of just can't excrete all the water they drink each mm -hmm. day because they, they're not eating enough solute to excrete the water. So is right. that the kind of 
are you seeing that sort of hyponatremia and what numbers are you seeing? And does that cause you to admit them? So I've rarely had to admit patients with anorexia for hyponatremia. Um, I can give an example. I I have a patient who is at about uh, 75% of her ideal body weight and has been that way for quite some time. She has some GI complications now that have made it difficult to refeed. And for a while, she was having sodiums down in the 122 and 123 range and was being admitted to the hospital. And we started working with a nephrologist and she's now um, taking Samscar, which is a medication that will increase sodium. Um, It was new to me. Hmm. but she's maintaining her sodium levels with that. I have another patient who was running in the 128 range and she was being treated in an intensive outpatient um, center and they were getting nervous about it. It didn't bother me a whole lot because it was chronic, but they wanted her over 130. So we just started telling her to eat a lot of salt and drink a lot of water (laughs) (laughs) and that's worked really well. Okay. But most of these patients with a little bit of hyponatremia will be in the, you know, 133 kind of range. Okay. And you can work with that. You just know it's there. It's another thing to say, look, you know, we're seeing an electrolyte abnormality and we don't want this to get worse. Our our chief of nephrology tells us his comfort zone is over 130. So that's kind of what I'm sticking with for the most part. But right. Yeah. Uh, Paul or Stuart, Paul, you look like you had something to say here. Well, that's just my face, but I, I feel like also we've been <laughs> a lot of what we've been focusing on seem to be the complications more of restriction. Uh, I wonder if you wouldn't mind spending some time talking about the things that we should look for uh, with sort of the purging end of things. Yeah, there's so many of them in patients who purge. Um, everything from the mouth down um, in the GI tract. So. I worry about GI problems in patients who are purging a lot. Um, I worry about the reflux that they get because they get sphincter dysfunction. They can develop a gastroparesis type of dysmotility. They're often constipated because they're vomiting and not that much is staying in. So they, you know, they're they're not having um, they're not having normal peristalsis. They're having reverse peristalsis. So you get a lot of GI problems there. Um, people who are having very violent purging can get Mallory Weiss tears and Mm. technically can even get gastric ruptures. I've never seen a gastric rupture, but I've definitely seen Mallory Weiss tears. And I often have patients come in and say, you know, I'm seeing a little bit of blood in my vomit. And so they're, they're getting little mucosal tears clearly. So the, the GI problems there are significant. Parotid swelling is very common with the vomiting because of the acid. And it's very upsetting to patients. Um, They have to stop purging for a few days for any of that to go down. And some people will get worse before it gets better. And I've had patients say, I can't stop purging because my parotid glands will swell up more. And that's true. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't think I'm understanding. What's the physiology of that? Like, how do they fix it? Is the parotid gland swelling? What's What's exactly causing it? How do they, and how does it get fixed? It's caused by the irritation from all the acid Mm -hmm. that these patients have in their mouths. And it will fix itself um, over a period of time. The reason it may get worse initially is something that I really don't understand. Okay. 
you can help patients by giving them any, you know, when somebody has peritonitis and you give them, um, you, you give them some sour lemon candy, <laughs> right? You could do the same thing with these patients if they're not purging, um, and it'll help the parotids go down. So you just have to be able to talk to them about that. Mm-hmm. Fluid and electrolyte disturbances. I mean, clearly you're they're losing a lot of fluid. And if you think about the electrolyte disturbances, and where's that potassium really going? It's not that they're vomiting the potassium. It's that they're vomiting acid, just like in some of the other things that we talk about, like like when patients have DKA, you know, you're you're really talking about an acid-base disturbance. And the reason that the potassium goes down is because it's going intracellularly. The same thing's going to happen with phosphorus. So you lose those electrolytes. It's not that they're gone from the body, but they've gone intracellular. You have to understand that physiology because you can throw an awful lot of potassium into these people, but if they're continuing to vomit all the acid, then you're going to have a hard time repleting them. Um, In addition to that, if they're using laxatives, then they're directly uh, losing potassium in their stool. So if they're vomiting and using laxatives, you've got to, you kind of got, you know, both, both ends, um, and both kinds of potassium loss. So that's a problem. And, you know, obviously the reason we're worried about the potassium is cardiac arrhythmia primarily. Phosphorus we're worried about for a couple of reasons. One is seizures and the other is rhabdomyolysis. A lot of these patients are already really fluid depleted. They're orthostatic they can get fluid depleted enough to actually have cardiovascular collapse if there's enough purging, um, especially if they're also using laxatives and or diuretics or all of those things. And a lot of patients will do all of those things when they become more desperate. They can also develop some edema if they stop using these things. So they'll get reflex edema from stopping diuretics or stopping the laxatives, and that panics them weight goes up. So they just start using more and more of these things and feel they really can't stop. And that's, that's the physiology with the edema is mineral corticoid excess because their body is kind of trying to maintain a fluid volume so they can perfuse, right? Because they're hypovolemic. So then- Exactly, right. Their, their kidneys are holding on to every little bit right. of fluid that they can. And now, even though they're putting more fluid back in maybe, or they're not purging so much out, it, it kind of takes our bodies a little while to adjust to that fact and realize that we don't need to secrete so much mineralocor- mineralocorticoid. You said it much better than I did. Um, and and so they're going to get that, they're gonna get that edema. Yeah, that's uh, I. Th- that's some very interesting physiology that uh, I didn't. Uh, I had never read so in depth about this, but I, I really like the um, thinking about th- this physiology stuff. As a physiology major in college, you know, I get, I, I like to uh, geek out on this stuff, guys. Right, but this is this is the whole reason why internists in general should be able to handle this stuff because really we did learn this physiology. It's just we don't we don't use it as much as you know we use it in, in heart failure. Right. Uh, and, and we think, well, OK, that's the only paradigm that we have for, you know, fluid balance stuff. But this is just a different paradigm. And we do know this stuff. We just think we don't know it. And also a lot of a, a lot of medical doctors are just freaked out by these patients. Right. Uh, right. They don't know how to talk to them. They are afraid 
they feel like they're butting heads with the patient. What you really need to mm. do is ally with the patient. Tell them you have the strength. You're using all the strength to walk around with no nutrition in your body, to walk around fluid depleted, to mm. do horrible things to yourself and have you know esophageal pain and abdominal pain. If you have the strength to use it that way, you you have the strength to stop doing these things too. And I believe that you can. So I try to ally with my patients rather than, you know, sort of yell at them while you're doing it again, you're doing it more. I think that that's kind of a great speech and I want to start to wrap up. I'm going to ask Stuart and Paul for final comments or questions. I do have a final question. Um, so we, we spent a lot of time looking at the, the therapy, mostly for bulimia. I wanted to get your thoughts about using antipsychotics for anorexic patients and whether or not that, that's effective and when we should consider those. Oh, I think that's a very difficult question. You're talking about using Zyprexa specifically, probably, um, and I'm sorry, Olanzapine. I'm not supposed to use the... the uh, <laughs> Brand names, I suppose. Correct. Uh, That's okay. We don't. But mind. we know what you're saying. We're going to get sponsored. Uh, if a patient actually becomes psychotic in the course of their illness, then it's a very reasonable thing to use antipsychotics. There's not very good evidence that these medications actually fix anorexia. In fact. I think it really can damage the doctor-patient relationship because you're giving them a medication that is likely to cause weight gain. And they're going to read that package insert. That is their biggest concern about anything you do to them. If you don't tell them, they're going to find out on their own and they're not going to trust you. If you do tell them, they're going to say, how can you do this to me? So I'm not a big fan of it. But when patients are in inpatient treatment, sometimes they need drastic measures, and then I let the psychiatrist handle it. Paul, any final questions? Yeah, I, I just wondered if Dr. Kaplan would be so kind as to touch on um, just treatment for binge eating disorder, since I think sure. that's the one we didn't talk quite as much about. I believe very strongly that people who have binge eating disorder really must be in psychotherapy. There's often so much shame and uh, so much psychological disturbance that even if it wasn't there when the binge eating started, it by the time they get to you, it's it's a big problem. So I feel very strongly about the psychotherapy. Um, I feel strongly about nutritional therapy because a lot of them are then restricting or eating very poorly at other times. And physiologically, you just need to feed your body consistently to maintain a good metabolism and also to not trigger too much hunger because being physically hungry is going to create a binge. So those things are really important. In terms of medications, there are a few different things that can be done. People used to use bupropion all the time because there weren't that many things that could quell appetite. Um, it's probably not the most effective of medications. People also use uh, topiramate off-label because it cuts appetite and it can calm people somewhat. And there is some um, evidence that fluoxetine can be helpful in binge eaters as well. The most recent 
advance is that the makers of Vyvanse list dexamphetamine tested it and found that it helps binge eating. I actually do use it, but I I use it with some caution and with some pause because when you think about it, any stimulant is going to cut appetite. I don't think they've ever tested Adderall to see mm. if it helps binge eating disorder. So you may be replacing one problem with another. Right. And you have to decide, is that more a benefit or more of a risk in this situation? Yeah. Is it because... It, it, I guess with some of these disorders, you, you mentioned substance abuse with, with bulimia. Is Does that also go along with binge eating disorder as well? Not as much. Okay. I mean, the substance of, of abuse and binge eating disorder is almost always just food. Mm-hmm. With bulimia, there's a, a big association with just chaotic um, lifestyle and chaotic behavior. Drinking, drug use, uh, sexual indiscretions. Um, so... I think it's a different kind of um, issue around abuse. And I'm not so worried that my binge eating disorder patients are drug abusers. I just don't want to replace one sort of addictive thing with another. Okay. And there are psychiatrists who just hate Vyvanse for this. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun. I definitely feel like I know so much more about the topic now. I, I think it, we could talk for hours and still not know everything. I mean, I could I could go on for six hours talking about eating disorders. <laughs> Everybody would leave the room and not want to hear anymore. <laughs> well, I, before that happens, why don't we why don't we get why don't we get some take home points and uh, just leave leave the audience with two or three things that you think are really important for them to remember and uh, you know if we have follow up questions then we might reach out to you by email uh, we do get a lot of listener feedback these days through social media and whatnot so we we might reach out to you to ask some questions if there's things we missed okay great so my take home points are one. In order to diagnose something, you have to be looking for it. So keep your eyes open, realize what the population is, what the demographics are, think about sports and think about um, youth in general, because there's the societal influence on patients. That's really the most important thing is realizing that it's not volitional behavior and telling patients to stop doing it is not going to solve a problem. It's going to create a problem. Thirdly, realize that it is something that's a team effort. It can be frustrating to treat if you if your expectations are too high of yourself or of the ability of a team to move things along quickly. Depending on how chronic someone is, it can take a long time. Somebody who's very chronic it has a bad prognosis for true remission. Catch it as early as possible because those people have a good prognosis. Awesome. I think those are great take-home points. And we thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah, Roz, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks Thanks for coming on. Watching Paul's expressions and, you know, trying to figure out what he's he's thinking. (laughs) I'm (laughs) throwing my cat away from the area. (laughs) When you see me bending over, that's just me cat wrangling. So I'm sorry for being disruptive. No, you weren't disrupting me. It was fine. (laughs) I I could only see his eyebrow on my screen. It's really weird. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. 
You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our monthly, actually, it's no longer monthly. You can also sign up for our email mailing list where you will get a weekly copy, PDF copy of our show notes, which we work very hard on. And also a once monthly video newsletter where we recap the key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice. You can get that at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And finally, we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your input. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. (laughs) And I remain Dr. Paul Williams. Good night. Oh, hey, Paul.